Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Well, today we are speaking with Jody Lift from Havoc Motorsport. We are in his office here on the north east side of the track. Pretty pretty accurate? Yep. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I know you've been on once before. We had a little Rallycross uh, extra edition. But uh, today I wanted to talk more about you, your background, and about your business here. Okay. Uh, did you? Are you from around here? Did you grow yep. up around here? Yep. Chicago. Um, grew up around here, um, just 20 miles away oh. from the track. What did your parents do? Were they in auto sports industry or not really no not really um my dad was a quality control inspector for general motors oh yeah um my mom was a hairdresser how long did he work for uh general motors long time yeah yeah he retired out of there he came out of the air force and, and went to work with him right away yeah what, what did he do in the air force um at the time he was a radio operator Oh, yeah? So he did logistics and things like that. On the ground or in the air? Uh, or both? B- B-29s. Oh, yeah. B-29. Yeah. Oh. From World War II. Very cool. So it's cutting edge back then. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Um, then how did you get um, How did you get involved with, with cars? Is it, did you start early on? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I got my license as soon as they let me, 15 years old. And um, in those days... To race in the United States, you had to be 21. Oh, really? So I went to Canada when I was um, 17, got a Canadian license. Really? Yeah. And they, they would let you race in the United States with a Canadian license. No, that's... <laughs> really? So what what years were you talking? Or is this 73. 73. So you're 17. Had you done any racing? I mean, obviously you didn't have a license, but did you do any car driving and stuff before you yeah, went out there? Yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, snowy roads, and um, um, first car was a Carmen Ghia, so it was pretty tail-happy. Oh, cool. And um, uh, and that's how I got involved in racing. We did solos and autocrosses and things, not in parking lots, but on, on track. Blackhawk used to have a real accessible um, type series that you could run Saturdays, and it was as fast as you want to go, but it was one car at a time. Oh, and where in Canada did you... Do you Saint Gervais. It, was it a weekend course, or was it a week course? Oh, Jim how? Russell. Yeah, it was like the preeminent school in the world. Um, Villeneuve and Villeneuve's dad and all those guys went up there. It's in Quebec. Um, so you drove up, your parents, were they off for this at 17 years old? They didn't, they didn't object. <laughs> <laughs> I think they wanted to get me out of the house, but... Uh, no, they were pretty supportive. My dad was pretty enthused. Yeah. So, so you go up there for a, a, a course. You get your license and yeah. Um, then, then got a formula car, and uh, learned how to work on that, take care of it. Uh, then, in those days, Formula Vs were built as kit cars. So, like most kits, they a lot of them ended up in the back of garages. The guys never finished them. So, I started a business building building those into cars, um, and selling them. So we started making money, a little bit of money right off the bat. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was a kid. You could get out of boy's life, you know. Uh, and a lot of 
race car builders started in Formula Vs. Uh, Riley and Scott, you've heard of. Well, he was one. Um, there's a lot of a lot of people. Um, so it was real real popular. The fields were, the June Sprints fields were on the order of 60, 70 cars. So it was pretty competitive. So that was good to. Is this all S S? This was all SCCA, but also Midwestern Council is a sanctioning body in the Midwest. It's much more of a low-key um, organization. Uh, SCCA was the, the top dog, and it was pretty regimented. So. Did you le learn how to just work on just by just start working on the cars, and that's? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Um, as much schooling as we could get. I got training through a number of dealerships uh, in management, but also just the nuts and bolts of the business. Um, so I worked for Porsche Audi. I worked for Volkswagen, um, several other manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So we went through all those training programs. And in those days, they were pretty stringent. Um, if you got Porsche training, you, you knew it. Wow, that's cool. And then so you started racing as much as you could also at the time yeah we were racing 20 times 20 to 30 times a year a season. Oh, wow. so uh, and then we added a car so we'd rent that car out and that would help pay for my my racing and then we moved to uh, a variety of other cars um when there was money and enthusiasm for the manufacturers to rent showroom stock um we got into that pretty heavy and then what, what's that what's exactly showroom that? stock is that's what it sounds, right? Is yeah, it? just uh, safety stuff. And manufacturers were all gung-ho to show off the product at the June Sprints and you know big high-profile events. So uh, we could get access to cars and parts and actually make some money. Um, we were, there was prize money available. Uh, and if, all road racing or oval racing or? Road racing. Road racing? Yeah. So in those days, it was like, you know, looked down upon by SCCA to make money. Um, oh, really? It was a sports kind of thing, and, and they, weren't, uh, they weren't too enthused about that. The manufacturers changed all that as soon as they, they got some of the money, too. <laughs> so what was your... Um, so back in the... How long did you race the Formula Vs for? Probably four or five years. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. And um, what... Were they? What was it like to drive those cars? I mean, they were seventy. I mean, were they? they pretty difficult, or they? It was a Beetle engine, twelve hundred cc's, eight hundred pounds. Um, yeah, they were pretty difficult <laughs> to drive. Uh, like I said, they had a lot of new builders building cars. They all had their own ideas on how to do it, and it took a special technique um, to to be fast, you know. Um, and you just every what kind of transmissions were they? Volkswagen transmission, Beetle transmission. So it's the uh, yeah. H pattern shifting? Yeah. Yeah. Synchros and just like it came out of the Beetle. Huh. Um, Beetle wheels. Um, really? Yeah. They were pretty, I mean, li were they light? much lighter? Were they pretty fast? or? Yeah, they were pretty, well, we thought they were fast because you had three of them around you. <laughs> um, they weren't particularly fast on top speed, but they would corner with Formula Fords and and like that. And they had little five-inch wheels, so um, it was all about the driver. Um, and then we moved Formula Fords and then Atlantics. And the school that I went to, uh, Russell, was um, big on Formula Fords. And that's, uh, that's a next step up. And 
it was a big class in those days. That's where you need to cut your teeth. That has had to be a, a certain level um, leveling ground for you because it's pretty competitive. So it started uh, back then. I'm still atop was Formula One back. Was that did they have Formula One like it is nowadays back then? Yeah. And so Formula Four was there a four, three, two, and one? No, it was Formula Ford as in Henry Ford. Ford. Oh, Formula yeah. Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was the international formula. Emerson Fittipaldi went to England to, to drive Formula Fords and became world champion shortly thereafter, two years after. Um, but that was the international, one international spec class that you go anywhere in the world, South uh-huh. Africa, Australia, United States, um, Canada, um, and have a universal class where you really weren't outclassed if you went someplace else. It was, it was a driver's class. And... Uh, and that's where the... Uh, um, so we were um, the international class of Formula Fords. So, so so drivers would go from Formula Fords into Formula One Super or... Super V's. Super V's. Uh, Emerson Fittipaldi went from Formula Fords right to Formula One. Um, that's what everybody, you know, was shooting for. And they still had uh, Grand Prix over here. and It was pretty popular. And... How, how did the indie cars back then? How did the indie cars rate? Were you? <clears throat> well, I went went and worked for an indie car team for a, for a while. It's back when the garages were still all wood, and then they burned out. But um, it was interesting. They had some F1 races in conjunction with indie cars. They actually went to Monza. A few indie cars went to Monza back in the '60s, I guess it was. Um, they were only three-liter cars, so they weren't. The Formula One cars weren't super fast as far as acceleration and top speed compared to a Offenhauser, which had 800 horsepower. These had about 350, 400. We're talking 60s, 70s. So um, they were just two different animals. Most most indie cars were, were doing um, ovals, and when you hit you hit the wall in an oval. It uh, has to be built pretty stout. Sure, yeah. Never considered that. That makes sense. So when did... <clears throat> so you kind of started with these cars. How much safety stuff was put in to the thinking, or what years did they go into? I mean, when they when you first saw these, the ones you're, <laughs> you're working on, was safety even a, con, a part of the thought process yet? No. Not really. Um, they were pretty dangerous. <laughs> pretty dangerous. <laughs> they were pretty. The Formula V, luckily they didn't go very fast, but they would have saddle tanks and just aluminum tanks along the cockpit. Um, yeah. So they weren't good in impacts as far as, you know, there was no safety cell. Um, the cages were, were pretty modern. The tube frame um, and like that were pretty stout. Uh, but other than that, it was pretty rudimentary. At what years did the did safety come into ideas? Was this all into the 80s or 90s? Yeah, the late 70s and early 80s. People started looking at stuff that they could do. Um, and it got so popular that they got an opportunity to see when, when cars crashed and what you could do to make them, make them better. And this was, you know, if you look at contemporary cars back in the 70s, there was a there was a lot of issues with safety even those in those days. Um, Ralph Nader and the Corvair, 
um, just about every other kind of, kind of car you could think of. Speaking of Corvair, we were out, my wife and I, I might have mentioned this before, I can't remember when Corvair was brought up, we were out in Los Angeles and we pulled up behind a Corvair and his license plate was unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was one of my favorite license plates ever. <laughs> uh, so that so most of that the early time was in I guess we call them formula cars, right? Is that formula cars, and then then when the the money was in stock cars, then you moved into the showroom stock cars, road race cars. I never did much oval track racing. Um, so how much was was of your time was spent driving as opposed to working on the car? Is it about well, equal? 50-50, about yeah. 50-50 yeah, yeah. back then. The one, you know, we had to do the one to make the other one pay. <laughs> so we didn't have much choice. And then, you know, we had private coaching, not for me, but I would coach other drivers. I would help them straighten out their cars and things like that. Because it was still mainly a sport where guys took care of their own own stuff. Um, there were some prep shops around, but very few. When did it go to where, I'm assuming now it's more opposite that, less guys take care of their own cars. What years did that kind of change or... It probably, probably the '90s, somewhere in there. Um, it was just an evolution. Like most sports, will just kind of evolve in their own kind of path. I, I know that you showed my son and I one time your um, wind tunnel that you have yeah. in, in here. So I'm gonna guess you kind of embraced a lot of that technology and engineering early on, or is this something yeah. that evolved over? Yeah, if you can get an edge, you know, if it, if you can get a better car, you'll look like a better driver. So, <laughs> so where where was the like with this wind wind tunnel you had? I'm sure that's probably was that the first one you built or that that's not a that's a commercial one though, isn't it? Yeah. Did you build your own to try to figure this stuff out yeah, earlier? Yeah, yeah, and and um, and still do things like that. Um, you know, just to see where we're at. We've got a, an actual machine that uh, uh, checks the dynamic spring rate of tires and static rates of spring, uh, of spring rates of tires, race tires. What is that? What is spring? What does that mean? Vertical stiffness, vertical stiffness, but also lateral stiffness. And we put a number on it, so we can compare one tire against another tire, so that we can match. Just like the movie said, those are matched set of tires, so we can match. The, the spring rates on tires are anywhere from 600 to 1,500 pounds. So if you have one that's 1,500 and you have the next one is 600, then you've got a, an unbalanced car. Whoa. So, you have a machine you put the you put the tire into? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then with data acquisition coming in, you know, uh, really coming in in the last 10 years, uh, you, can, you can log all the aero stuff that's going on. A lot of our cars out here will have at least four... Most of them have eight probes around the car. Um, the nose, the nose wing, uh, pitot tube for airspeed, um, the diffuser or the floor or the tunnels, and the rear wing would be the minimal. And we've won a couple of national championships because because we paid attention to the arrow. Um, wow, eight eight probes. Yeah. Wow. And that's I would I can do more in the tunnel. Than I can on a car, because that's all they manufacture that's affordable. But um, you get up into big cars, and, and it'll be 30 or 40 different probes. That's the whole array that you'll see with F1. 
with all the tubes all around the car. That way they can map a whole vehicle with the different pressures and, um, and speed of the air that's going around, how turbulent it is and things. And uh, it's so easy now to actually get accurate downforce numbers. Or if something goes weird, you can tell if you've got a crosswind. You know, if you all of a sudden, you know, you just can't go as fast as you were the other day. Well, maybe you got a headwind. And these are all verifiable. So it kind of takes some of the black magic out of it. Wow. So you kind of embrace that. Sounds like you embraced a lot of this stuff early on, maybe before other guys were kind of kind yeah. of looking at this, trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you had to. And people, um, you know, tinkered in their own ways. And they, they had areas that they would work on and some guys like to build motors and you know I, I wanted to make the whole package work for the driver as best we could and I, I know you did some rally rally racing when when did you well there's actually <laughs> there was actually money in that at one point and they had major manufacturers um, I was a, working as a service manager at Volkswagen at the time and Volkswagen had a um, a real Volkswagen of America had a real good plan they started building cars over in, uh, um, I think it was New Jersey, Westmoreland. Um, but the plan was to do a full European-style program over here in the United States, North America. Um, Pikes Peak was part of it. There was an international race in a rally in uh, Washington State. There was an international race uh, a rally in Canada and Mexico. So it gave. America an opportunity to participate as a as a vendor for North America and uh, It paid pretty well And that's one reason why we could get into it rel relatively inexpensively and um, What years was this? That would have been in the 80s. In the 80s? Mid, mid 80s, yeah um, Long story short <laughs> the whole group from Volkswagen and their sponsor went over to uh, flew over to England to get an okay from the Europeans to do this and a budget. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was an airplane crash over Lockerbie, Scotland. Yeah. That was a... Um, they were on that plane? Yeah. Wow. All the upper man management, all the motorsport um, management. So that kind of put a damper on that. But they still, still did a small program. Wow. So we ran a Volkswagen for a number of years. We finished fourth in the country with, um, in group, in the open group, um, O it was called. So you were against Rod Mill in a four-wheel drive RX-7. You had a four-wheel drive uh, Audi with Buffalo, who, had, who was internationally seated, and uh, Millen was also, and um, an aer aerobatic um, pilot um, that had a Peugeot, four-wheel drive Peugeot. And there were 150 entries, and we ended up fourth overall over the whole country. What kind of car were you driving? GTI. A GTI? Yeah. That was... Uh, that was two-wheel drive. Two, Front-wheel drive, right? Yeah. Front-wheel drive? Yeah. And, wow, so you, were you, how much were they giving you? Did you have your own team or on the team, or was Volkswagen helping you? Yeah, we, had, we, got, we got a lot of corporate help. Okay. Not just from Volkswagen, but other suppliers. So I started with those kind of sponsors I started selling their products so that kind of help with uh, with the funding and so so on the I'm, I'm in, intrigued 
quite a bit by this because <laughs> this rally race. And so you had a co-driver. Yeah. So this is just like the rally, not rally cross, but rally racing like we see with people standing on side of the road in Europe and the cars going 100 miles an hour down the gravel road. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm assuming it was a little safer over here. You didn't have people standing on side of the road or were there still... It wasn't as popular. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> so you didn't have to worry about that. But there was a, there was a, a race, uh, a rally up in the Upper Peninsula that took a week took nine days and you were up there for nine days stages or was it different stages um up there you know it's wilderness so you've got really long stages you could have a 20 30 mile uh, 30 mile stage um so yeah yeah it was pretty popular all the manufacturers dodge was in um dodge chrysler uh, a lot of the engineers from ford was in um in cars that they were testing um but the, the, the class act was the, the European stuff, the four-wheel drive Peugeot, turbocharged, 600 horsepower. Millen's um, RX-7 was four-wheel drive. That was, that was designed. An RX-7, four-wheel drive, rotary engine, and a four-wheel drive transmission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy that designed that car went on to design, um, um, become a designer for Indy cars. Uh, it was pretty sophisticated. Um, and they were fast. They were really fast. They were faster than us. We were just consistent and didn't break a lot. So how does this work? So you have a, did you have the same co-driver this entire time? or Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. And how, how does it logistically work? You get a map? Do you get a map? Yeah, you get a stage book. Um, and there'll be um, um, diagrams in the corners. And they'll give you a warning as far as um, how dangerous it is. And one exclamation point, two exclamation you know, uh, depending on how serious, if you go off, it is. There's cliffs. There's, there's, no, there's no guardrails. There's nothing except trees to hit. And exclamation points to tell you, yeah. hey, be careful. <laughs> yeah. What? And yeah. Who, who makes it? Were these government maps or did they did the no they actually had a rally master that would make the maps a rally master yeah. makes the maps puts in a booklet and it'll say say it's a 20 20 mile stage it'll it'll give the degree of difficulty or danger um on the different corners plus a little um uh, drawing of the acuity of the corner things like that or if they have uh, you know uh, logs close to the track things like that it, like in the morning did they go out and make sure a tree didn't fall down they did they would pre-run it yeah so you <laughs> they would pre-run it and uh but there's not distances between turns that's what the co-driver has to calculate yeah. yeah so so it's all to scale yeah yeah and he sits in a hotel room the night before and figures and yeah does. just kind of goes over the places that are really dangerous and and you know highlights and cause we'll be in the car you know we can be in the car eight ten hours Eight to ten hours. Yeah. And he's flipping through this book. Yeah. He or she. Yeah. Was there women drivers back then? Or? Yeah. Yeah. They were they were real good. And so what I have seen is they say turn in three is it seconds or feet or what is it? Well if you're in Canada they, they put everything in kilometers, so we had to do do some calculations. But yeah, it would be in uh, uh say six hundred feet and then count down from six hundred to um, right and, around the corner and turn right yeah. and you as the driver uh, you get a, a acuity you know 90 degrees or 180 degrees or what have you and 
you as the driver, I mean, obviously you've probably looked at the map, right? But you can't remember no, I, I, 10 hours of driving, right? No. So... You can't lose the book. <laughs> you can't drop the book. <laughs> no. And when you when he says you're, you're fast as you can go, I mean, 100 miles an hour, and he says turn right, and you 90 degrees, and you got to trust that it's a 90 yeah. degree. Yeah, and there's terrain changes. You know, they, they don't hold these downtown. So you, you get out, you know, um, out in the woods, and usually at night. So you never get a chance to pre-run them. Um, all you got is the book. Occasionally, if you go to the same event year after year, you'll get a feel for some of the same corners. They'll use some of the same stages um, over and over. Um, but then you got weather and everything else changes. Are there, are there pit stops in these 10 hour things? Yeah, yeah, you got to get gas, you got to have a service truck. So your service truck has got his own book um, to fuel, tires, things like that. And and he, are you he, talking to him on the radio? Like saying we coming? didn't we didn't have radios no. And between there's he he he'd get directions to a service area, say it was a forest preserve or a, a truck stop or something. So he would go ahead and he would camp out there until he came by, and then he would fix whatever was broken or gas us up and go. Did you, do you get out and have to do an AJ Foyt wrenching on the own car sometimes or? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes out on the stages, you know, if you whack a tree. And you only got three, three tires on the ground. You you got to do something because there's another one coming. Wow! And are these it's a two minute, two minute intervals? Yeah. Okay. And did you have a intercom system between you and a yeah. co-driver? Yeah. So you could at least hear each other pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. We just put. In fact, I just put on my, on my Miata. We just put a. I ordered a. Inter, a rally car intercom system yeah. to put on there so that my son and I can hear the coach clearly yeah. as opposed makes to makes a big difference you know hand signals and or you know some of the other communication things that I've had yeah the bluetooth I have I did get a bluetooth one but it is delayed <laughs> bluetooth oh, is not sure. is not perfect it's not sure. perfectly synced so that's why we went I ahead and, and found this <laughs> Rally car, friend, yeah. another friend of mine, he got the same one to put it in there. He thought that was a good I think it idea. was Pelter that used to make the best ones. They also make uh, aircraft. Um, Intercom. Well, that's yeah. right. And I wanted one with dual uh, uh, volume controls, like you have in an airplane. You know, so you can hear the guy telling you to flare or mm-hmm. <laughs> go around. <laughs> we we flew air, airline flying. It wasn't until maybe ten years ago. We didn't have an intercom. The cockpit's not that loud, but we only wore one mm-hmm. radio in our right ear. Well, the right, the left seater mm-hmm. left his right ear open. The right seater left his left ear open. But it was only about ten years ago before we really started using, which is amazing to me because yeah. it's, I can't. I think back on it now that how terrible it was. You know, we were screaming at each other, and sometimes when. Um, not screaming it's in an emergency way. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, landing gear up and stuff like that. Cause, um, but, yeah. So, I, I think hearing each other is pretty, fairly important. Because <laughs> a lot of times in a car, you're, you're talking about some pretty subtle stuff. I mean, it's coming up fast, but you have to, you have to really be precise with your language. It, do, do the best drivers become the best co-drivers or this co-driver is, is, a, is a subset 
of of expertise almost on its own. Well, theoretically, <laughs> my guy was, yeah. Um, but he, he did his own, he would do his own stage rallies, too. So he enjoyed both ends of it. Um, so, yeah, it would take, uh, it takes a certain kind of a patience to sit in a car with a guy and, in the middle of the night. And, and reading, bouncing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess he's not yeah. getting car sick by reading. <laughs> a lot of people get car sick. A lot of, especially if you're, you're, you know, if you if you lose your focus, yeah, and your head goes down, your yeah. ear, the hair in your ears doesn't know exactly what's happening. Um, I, wow, interesting. You know, it's one thing in an airplane. I never bothered me reading or reading a map or anything. I n- never got even remotely um, sick or b- bothered me at all. But mm-hmm. I know do sometimes in a car. Yeah, I could especially in the back seat for some reason. You know, I can be reading and look up and go like in a van, a hotel van. I'm going to the hotel or something. I look up and I go, I shouldn't have been squinting and reading my the yeah. latest news on my phone, right? Sometimes, so I can't imagine that <laughs> how to do that for that long. That are there? Obviously, you got water on board. Yeah. You got food with you? Did no, no food. Surface areas usually are. You know, if we need to eat. And so. So generally they were... Nature calls and you had to pull, you were pulling over to the side? Yeah, you're usually pretty busy. <laughs> um, yeah, you can pull over to the side. The stages generally were somewhere between 40 to 50 miles. Some were much longer, some were much shorter. Um, so you had opportunities at the end of the stage to go back on public highways and, and if you need to stop, you can stop. Um, but if you were late to a checkpoint, for instance, that's all part of it too. If you broke down, you start losing time. So if if you need to stop, you're potentially and you don't know where you're going. You've never seen the roads before. Uh, you can be in Canada, the Upper Peninsula. You can be, uh, you know, Mount Olympus in Washington. Um, so it was the, the, it was uh, everybody started out pretty even. I mean, nobody had any big. Uh, Buffum used to was a champion in Europe. Millen was a champion um, Southeast Asia, and uh, the other guy, the, the, the pilot guy, um, he was seated FIA seated where he could go to go FIA with the international sanctioning body for all kinds of different racing. Yeah. So um, and, and uh, he did most of his racing in uh, uh, Monte Carlo, France. Um, over there where it's really high level. All the manufacturers, even then, were involved. And that's when the big race for power was on. So, um, Audi built their four-wheel drive turbo, and the Peugeot was a mid-engined turbo. Um, oh, wow. And then Millen's Mazda, the RX-7, was basically a mid-engined car. It was, the engine was pretty far back. So, so as a, as a and from an engineering standpoint, just a little sidebar here, in my mind, when I heard about this RX-7 road re-engine, I go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Why, engineering, why would the RX, why does that rotary motor never caught on? Why, why did it never? Well, it's, it's, um, was it two? It's emissions and it's mileage. Those are the two big things I really haven't been able to beat. If you weren't concerned about emissions, like in the early 70s, and you weren't concerned about mileage, like the early 70s, they were, you know, pretty good car, but once the once they had to clean up their act smog wise, and they had to get better mileage, they thought they had to get better mileage. Um, then it made it really tough. 
Hmm. The, the combustion chamber is just... Um, to triangle-like, right? Yeah, yeah, but each one is the combustion chamber. And it's a long path. So the uh, efficiency... Nowadays, they can do a pretty good job. Are there any cars still making... Mazda's not making, still making... Are they still making a rotary engine? They don't make a rotary anymore, no. Uh-uh. The last one was the Renesis and the RX-8. That's the one that are in our Pro Mazdas. You know, it's about this big by this big. And so it's, it's maybe 300 two, horsepower. Two, two feet by a foot? Yeah, about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. Foot and a half by foot and a half. Mm-hmm. So you guys are still running them. That's right. I forgot about that in the Formula yeah. cars. And 300 horsepower? Yeah, pretty easy. So for size-wise, the rotary engines produce a lot of horsepower. Yeah. And it's, you know, it weighs about 80 pounds, 90 pounds. So one guy can pick it up. So it's really compact. Um, you can get it really low down in the chassis. So it's got a lot of going for it as a race car, not much as for a street car. Hmm. There's less moving parts? Very few, yeah. Very few moving parts, right? So. Yeah. Huh. Um, did you find rally... What did you find more enjoyable, rally racing or... Well, we were getting Rotary. paid, so I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which is more challenging? It's just different. It's different. It's just different. Um, they would often have um, uh, a stage at a racetrack, whether it be an oval or dirt oval or a paved oval, and uh, they would have it. You know, it was a big deal for these little little towns, and uh, you'd get an opportunity to, to do some circuit racing at those while you were involved in the off-road stages I, I know I hear your voice if, that you, you've graciously rode along in the rally cars you built for our family and uh, I hear your voice all the time in my head when I'm out running either yeah. I'm at my farm running around I hear your coaching you know get the wheels lined up as soon as possible and and you know I think you're a great coach and I probably should spend more time with you <laughs> in, the, in the car uh, but I, I think it's really neat to get the perspective of someone who's really spent a lot of time rally racing and even the little stuff that we do here I, I think it's pretty valuable there's no question my son's car control is pretty incredible at 14 years old from rally racing I mean yeah. it's pretty incredible it'll be second nature for him you know I mean if he gets even on the street if he gets into an issue with weather or another car or just you know inattentiveness he'll he'll it'll be instinct for him I, I'm I'm shocked we We'll get that here more current events here in a second, but that, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty shocked that it's his ability so quickly. Now he doesn't look left and right when he pulls out on the road, but, but he can sure control a fishtail. Yeah, that's the fun part. Um, so I, let's talk about um, your involvement here in the in the um, in the Audubon. When is the first time you heard about? some crazy idea of a, of a country club racetrack early on right, right pretty there. early yeah before they did anything here before they moved any dirt um, there was another one going up um, basically um, about a hundred miles east of here um, and that was getting a lot of press oh really another yeah. guy had an idea to do that huh? yeah another person um, and Mark Basso um, had me come out and look at which was a soybean field and um I took a look at it and said, you know, keep me in mind or something. 
Um, we had a shop up in uh, at Gingerman, up in uh, Southwest uh, Michigan. And you were doing just at that time. We were doing a school up there. A school, race school, race school. and for in formula cars. Formula Mazdas. Yeah. Formula Mazdas. Well, we had we were affiliated with uh, Mazda pretty, so we got uh, their whole range Miatas and and uh, our Formula Mazdas in those days. So uh, that was pretty pretty good business for a while. We were up there for five years. Five years, okay. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to see if you could start something down here, maybe kind of. Yeah, he was looking for members. That's okay. what floated the boat for for him, and um, and it went well. It went well. Um, Joliet got on board, which was big, and uh, that helped um, grease the wheels. So, what what year did you uh, actually set up? Did you shut up shop here early on, or were you just kind of like? Help, help? No, we'd come out as a. Me- I was yeah. We we joined as a member pretty early. Okay, and then uh, we moved in. We built this place, moved in here, I guess it was 10, 12 years ago, something like that. So around 2006-ish? Yeah. Somewhere around around there? So the place was already up and running. Um, they had some big events, uh, pro events. Harris was a sponsor, some of those. Um, and they had their race series kind of, sort of, up and running. And... Uh, and uh, we haven't moved since, so no matter what they say. <laughs> and <clears throat> so it's it's. I know you you do work on all about about any kind of car. Yeah, it's not as efficient, but you know, people need somebody to work on their stuff. Uh, but and it does seem that your focus is of all. So there's four main race shops here, and. It seems to me that this is the for, for formula cars. This is where you're, which my son is of course dying for, is you know he wants the big go kart, right? Um, me too. <laughs> is is that been the primary focus the entire time? Has been the formula type cars that you? That's no, been, not necessarily. It's whatever's popular, whatever makes sense. The formula cars is a purpose built car. From a building standpoint, you don't really have to massage them too much. They're pretty well built nowadays so you've got a pretty robust platform to put a customer in put a kid in um, put your wife in um, to begin with robust not only in safety but robust in um, serviceability um, and just plain usefulness for the task and the in the entry level, current entry level, we would consider that that's the Formula Mazda, right? Is that mm-hmm. that that be correct? Mm-hmm. That was a, a a car that they used at, at the Russell School in California for years and years and years, and they had their own championship. It was a USAC championship, and they they graduated hundreds of drivers out of that school. Um, it was a very good school. Um, and what kind of motor does that have? Is that that's the- got the old um, Mazda motor, the, the original 13B. Which was put in streetcars. Um, the rotary motor also? Rotary motor, yeah. Well, carburetor. Um, and that was one of the downfalls of, of Mazda as far as a product uh, for the streetcars because the carburetors just weren't sophisticated enough to handle uh, a Wankel, Wankel engine. So, yeah, so we, uh, we ran a number of championships. We ran the school uh, all using the, the standard Formula Mazda platform. And you call it a Wankel engine? Yeah, that's, that's the, the guy that 
the designer of it? Yeah. Did, was he, where was he from? Was he, obviously that sounded like a Japanese name. Um, German. 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 Were there any German cars that used it? I mean, production The NSU, car? yeah, which became Audi. So the original Audi was... An NSU, which was a Wankel engine. Was a Wankel engine. Yeah. And then... And that, what years would that have been? That can, I don't know how long Audi's been around. Is that... Early 60s. Early 60s. Yeah. They started, and that was yeah. the engine that they used. Well, NSU, I think, made airplanes. Um, they made motors, engines for uh, aircraft. Uh, and this is when, after World War II, that things were just um, getting back to normal for the their economy, mm-hmm. the German economy. If memory serves me right, there is an airplane that has a rotary engine. Yeah, like a small, like a a, a small private airplane. Yeah, a rotary engine. I'm, I'm trying to. It escapes me right now. There's some there's some um, drones that have them. There's. Um, and what they, the terminology is a little bit too broad when you say rotary engine because there's a, a number of different, different kinds of rotary engine. Yeah. Um, well, of course, we, we, we call a rotary, a rotary engine on a steerman. Yeah. We call it a rotary right. engine, which right. is not necessarily what I'm referring to. Right? Right. I'm talking about, the, the right. tr- for lack of a better word, a triangle right. spinning around, not right. the rotary engine that actually rotates. Right. So it's a, it's a pretty broad terminology. Yeah. Uh, but they make them for, they make generators. Um, um, they use stationary power plants. Um, there's no vibration because there's nothing moving around. There's nothing reciprocated. Oh, it's just kind of spinning. So um, they're real good for generators and that type of stuff. They make miniature ones. Um, there's a whole industry out there that uh, Mr. Weichel used to work for the uh, German government during World War II. So he had some pretty good funding. Um, and then uh, Toyo Koyo in Japan bought the patent rights. So they started working on it. So that's why it ended up on the RX-7, Yeah. as I would say, the RX-7 being yeah. popularized with with that motor. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, and so the Formula Mazda, with a carb- it has a carbureted... Um, uh, rotary engine. What kind of transmissions are on those? It's a real race box. It's a Hewlin. Is that sequential? No, you have to shift it, but it's uh, um, dog rings. It's not synchro, so you can blip the throttle and drive it like a real race car. And that, that was what made a great training car, because they could go from there. A cl- always using a clutch? Clutch to get started? And you don't have to, yeah. You don't but, have to, but... But if you get good enough, you yeah. you sync the engine up with yeah. your accelerator foot, and right. then you're shifting. Right. So it teaches you left foot braking, teaches you threshold braking. It, it gets you to some places appropriate to left foot brake, sometimes not so much. But it allowed you to do everything that a big car would. A big Indy car, Formula 5000 car, anything like that. And... and, oh, and so someone asked me the other day, so what, and I didn't know the answer. In an Indy Indy car, are they they're shifting their paddle shifting that currently in an Indy car? I think currently they are, yeah. And a, a clutch to get going probably from the start, mm-hmm. and then the, they don't touch the clutch mm-hmm. by it. Ours, our uh, our Raynar, was Paul Tracy's car. It's um, it, it's a sequential box, but you still had to shift it. You, you had a bump shift. And that's the red car that's mm-hmm. sitting in here that was an Indy car in the nineties. Yeah, ninety nine. And um, uh, one of your customers, right? This yeah. 
and um, which is a super cool, <laughs> super cool car to say the least. The best it did was third place at Indy, it's 500. But, uh, are a lot of those? This be, is becoming a. I'm supposed to keep this sequential, but I keep asking. You keep. Well, it's starting I'm, on these things, and I went. I love these questions here that they're popping in my mind. But are a lot of Indy cars still available for purchase? Or what do they do with yeah, the they old, are. What do they do with these old race cars? Not just Indy cars, but old race cars. Right? The, the the most current ones were basically subsidized by automotive manufacturers. So they own the technical rights, the intellectual rights to that motor that they gave Roger Penske or, or Ganassi or any of these. So when they pulled out, Toyota for instance, Ford for instance, um, when they pulled out for whatever reasons, they took their motor back home. So you didn't give your motor up? Yeah. You, you leased it. You didn't own Interesting. it. Interesting. So there you are going through eBay and you want to buy an Indy car. Um, the ones that are for sale are usually no engines. Because I've seen them and they're fairly inexpensive. For, for 15 grand. You can yeah. Now you can hang it from the wall or. Or you can do what we did with this, and that was rewire the complete system, get a standalone ECU, a standalone data acquisition system, and a, a motor that would be compatible with all that. So that all had to be done before this, this ran around the track. Um, that's the only problem with the more modern ones. And the more modern ones are just light years ahead of, I mean, they, they were really dangerous, dangerous cars just five, eight years before this one. Um, it's a much, much safer. So early '90s, real dangerous. Yeah. And then they they started. They had tiny. They didn't have any rules, so they had tiny uh, foot wells. So that's why these guys all got yeah, busted. Their feet ankles were all beat up. Feet. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened a lot because um, they had a lot of oval races, and the walls didn't move much. So um, that's that's the that's why you see them on eBay and. Yeah, because I have. I'm like, hey, I tell my wife, hey, let's get his IndyCar here. It's, yeah, he, he said $15,000. Yeah, yeah. And I never understood <laughs> the challenges you might have to yeah. to get it to move yeah. <laughs> under its own power, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you come out here and Formula Mazda is a, a step up. And there, there, there are a few. For, you you kind of help broker some cars. So if somebody wanted yeah. to get into. We ran them if they just want to try one out. So, yeah, so somebody could come out here and say, yeah. hey, I'd like to try a, a Formula Mazda. You can rent them, help them, coach them, get, get them in and kind of feel where they are, mm-hmm. get them on the track to see how great they are. I'd like to know how great they are. Um, how great they are and uh, yeah, everything from... from it. So coaching-wise, what's the best way to coach, to get coaching in that car? Is it lead follow or is it lead radius or data radios, acquisition? Yeah. Leaf. Well, all that. All that. All that. And and some of it just reinforces the other one. Um, Brian, my son, he uh, he got a silver medal at the runoffs in, in a Formula Mazda. Um, the runoffs is a, the big end-of-the-year race for all the championships. So he he, uh, he got a, a, a silver medal at the runoffs, and he's a pretty good coach. He works there. Yeah, that's the, the of the three instructors. That's the one still that we are uh, looking forward to getting him on the podcast and learning about his background, history, and and, and coaching. I I suppose it's no different than uh, you know cart 
coaching, you know, whether you're coaching from a, 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 a uh, GoPro camera mounted on the front or data acquisition or the guy standing out there, I guess it's just easier standing over a go-kart track and, and watch how everybody's going than it is <laughs> probably on a, on a two, three mile track. You can't necessarily drones. I think the answer is that is we, we put park a drone up and then we, <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. You can you can get that same bird's eye view with the data too, though. With the data, with yeah. the GPS, um, you can see what part of the track they're on, and um, and if, if you put all those things together, you, you it's a really po- uh, positive training tool to to use the data, to use the lead follow with the radios. The the big deal with the radios it's immediate, and if he hears you well enough and he's listening he can make that change the next lap or the next corner so it's that immediate um, feedback that, that really helps you have to be careful what you say but um, I had a guy one time uh, we, were, we were driving Miatas I was in the passenger seat and he was driving he drove pretty fast not very well but pretty fast and we put um, we put cones down to mark the apexes and he, he would, couldn't hit an apex with a shotgun, but um, we kept going around. I got frustrated, and I says, okay, now hit that corn, hit that cone. Well, he just did hit the cone. He hit the cone. He hit the cone, <laughs> knocked the fender off the car. So I guess you got to be careful what you say. <laughs> you got to choose your words. Interesting. So, uh, we, again, we so f- the Formula Mazda, the, obviously work on all kinds of stuff here at Havoc, but... And the Pro Mazda, how much of a step up is from the Formula Mazda to the Pro Mazda? It, it's pretty easy to what's do. The, what's the horsepower of the... The Pro Mazda is um, 286, and you're at 186 in the standard car, so you get got 100 more horsepower. You do have a little bit more aero, uh, you have a little bit less drag, you have a sequential box, which you don't have in the standard car. Um, at one time, the, the, the Pro Mazda held the members' lap record for both the north and the south track. So it's a pretty... Um, it's fast. Yeah. And they're... Uh, so, like a Radical, what's, how many horsepower does a Radical have? We, well, we see those out here, too, right? Yeah, I think they're... I think they're over 200, 225, something like that. So um, s- somewhat comparable, but a different... Obviously a different vehicle. Yeah, it was never made to race anything. It really wasn't. That, that that car, that class, they had a class in England where one of the you know, interesting, quaint things they do over there is they had a race class, but you had to have it street legal. So you had to drive it to the track. So that's why you had turn signals and you had all this. Uh, um, we had the first radical in the country here in 2004, I think. Um, and it was, it was, for its time, it was pretty fast. Um, they're not quite as fast as the pro, pro Mazda's here, but they could be. Um, so yeah, those were those were uh, another type of car that doesn't necessarily fit into anything. Yeah, it's kind of its own. It's its own thing. Kind of its own thing, yeah. Um, anyway, so in, in addition to that, with the other focus, I think you were very instrumental in helping the rally cross program start here and hopefully that will grow and and get more people interested in it and like i said you built uh one car for us and half a car and you were you were very 
kind in helping my son and I. We took on that project one uh, one December and uh, did the stuff we could, and then we brought it here for the for the suspension. And those cars have been very reliable. Um, we've had a lot of success getting good times uh, on the track and dependability with those cars. I, I think that you've kind of focused on the the focus cars for Ford Focuses, mid-2000 Ford Focuses. Ours happen to be SVTs, uh, which upped a little bit of horsepower and, and you know, and I don't know if it's quite necessary, but at the time I was like, yeah, more horsepower, more horsepower. My son and I were like, we need more horsepower. I don't know if you necessarily need more horsepower, but they, they seem to be a, a somewhat of a economical car. We Ours have a lot of stuff on them, so that makes it yeah. reliable. Yeah. You know, with two, and then we have, we like to give rides, so we got two, yeah. you know, race seats, and we had the two sets of shoulder harnesses, so a lot of that stuff adds overall to your enjoyment of the car, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> um, some, perhaps unnecessary if you just want to get out there and drive, but we wanted to share our enthusiasm for, uh, for rally racing, and, um, but, you know, we, the next race is, uh, so this is the 18th of July, next race is next weekend, uh, Hopefully I'll have both of them here, and we we will, uh, my wife and I and son will be able to to, to spend a lot, of t- a lot of time out there. Oh, by the way, we do have one, there for a while we didn't have a rental, but we do have a, a, a railing cross rental. Yeah, also excellent, a focus. excellent po- point there. If you want to come out and spend the day mm-hmm. in a rally car to see what it's like. This is an automatic if somebody's not familiar with the stick shift. You can shift it manually if you want, but it's an automatic. You can just put it in drive like your street car. Oh, is it like like paddle shifting? No. No. No, you'd have to move the the shifter. Oh, but you could. Oh, but that's yeah. Good point. Yeah, if you wanted to either leave it in. Yeah, excellent. Get, point. It, it would get somebody a feel for what it's about. Um, it's certainly not. It's all safety. Uh, all the safety stuffs there. But, uh, the performance stuff um, we haven't gotten into, but it's a, it's a perfect school car. Yeah, excellent point. So if your your wife, uh, your husband, if they don't drive stick, if they don't drive stick, this yeah. way to get or young person. Yeah. Um, my, my <laughs> I love to tell a story. My son got in a we have a '66 Impala, and he got in a '66 Impala to help me push it out of our car barn. And he said, "Where's the clutch?" He had never driven. <laughs> a car without a clutch and that made, I was proud of that he thinks I make fun of him because I said no I'm proud of the fact that you've been driving for two years yeah. and the only thing you've ever driven is a manual transmission um, so perfect training he learns all that <laughs> stuff uh, so getting involved and, and so you have a formula Mazda for rent you can yep. come out and rent and enjoy that and see how that is you have rally cars to rent. We have a Pro Mazda also. For and rent. a Pro Mazda. Or to race. Um, there is a race series for, for both um, the standard Formula Mazda and for the Pro Mazda. Um, and those are available for rent, either one of them. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's about uh, Thank you. Um, time I learned. I've been out here for a few years, and I've 
know snippets of your history, so uh, it's about time for me to learn a little bit more about where you started. I found it very interesting. Uh, what a wealth of knowledge. What If someone would like to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Your website is? Um, HavocMotorsport.com. HavocMotorsport.com. And my numbers are there, phone numbers, um, email, everything's on the website. And Or here. I'm here a lot. Seven days. Yeah, the shop open seven days a week? Six, six days a week. Six yeah, days a I've week. I've been trying to take Mondays off. Mondays off, so when the track is closed, members closed, I should. Um, so come out here and just come through the... At least take a look. Gar- the, the gate, turn right, follow it all the way around to the dead end, and uh, come in and see some cool cars. Yeah. Visit with you a little bit to kind of find out all the options that you have here. Well, I think that's important before people get in over their heads on something that they they can't live with, you know, either car's too fast or too slow. If they get in and realize the different possibilities, it, it's it's easier going down a planned path. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Jody, thanks for being on the podcast. I can't wait to visit with you again. We'll find out what other projects you got going on, and uh, um, we'll see you at the Rallycross race. Very good. All right. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.